Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Good Wednesday afternoon. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online with you at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky. Brian Haydad and Brian Scott Rippey Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. This is the September 11th, 2019 edition of Sports Talk Mississippi. Today will be a little different for the uh, first little while on the show. I want us to all take a little bit of time to remember and to share some thoughts with each other. I'll kind of get us started down this road and uh, would love to hear from you via the Sports Talk Mississippi Twitter feed at Sports Talk MISS or via the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Reach out to us and let us know what stands out to you from September 11th, 2001. On December 8, 1941, to a full session of the American Congress and with a radio audience across the United States and around the world listening, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered a speech about 36 hours after the invasion by the Japanese of Pearl Harbor. Here's part of what he said. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. He went on to say, no matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the utmost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. Notice that FDR did not say a day that will live in infamy, as is often misquoted, but rather a date that will live in infamy. That date, or the day, was a Sunday, but the date, December 7th, 1941, is what stands out. Almost 60 years later, and 18 years ago today, we added a new date to American history that lives in infamy, September 11th. I would encourage you, if you've never done this before, every single year, Ari Fleischer, who at the time was the press secretary for the president, retweets or or tweets throughout the day a timeline of events as he remembers it and from notes that he's taken along the way. And it is a 
almost minute-by-minute, certainly hour-by-hour account of exactly what happened with the president that day. That night, after returning to Washington, D.C., frankly against the advice of some of his advisors, President George W. Bush addressed the nation, and this is in part what he said. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist attacks. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon of freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature, and we responded with the best of America. With the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Those were the words of George Bush when he addressed the country on the night of September 11th. What followed the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and an attempt on the White House was America at its absolute best. For a short period of time, there were really no Republicans and Democrats. There was no black, white, Asian, Hispanic. There was no straight and gay. For a short time, we were simply all Americans, proud to live in and be part of the greatest country in civilized history, and hell-bent on showing the world that we would not bow at the feet of terror. But unfortunately, as with all tragic events, time refused to stand still. Our resolve weakened, our petty differences resurfaced, and we slowly embarked into a time of divisiveness and bitterness and cynicism and social outrage that, frankly, is still going strong today. Yeah, you know, it's my hope and prayer that we never see another attack on American soil that rivals that of 18 years ago today. But I also hope and pray that as Americans, and I don't mean factions of America, I mean America as a whole, with the help of the Almighty, can somehow regain the level of resolve and courage and patriotism and selflessness that was so evident in the hours and the days and the weeks and the months that followed the attacks that happened on September 11th. I don't know if that's naive. Maybe it is. But it certainly would be nice to see us striving in that direction. Yeah, I think we've all got lasting images, things that stand out in our minds from the day of the attacks, from the following days, from the following weeks. And I'd love to hear 
some of those from you. Where were you? What were you doing? Who in particular were you concerned about? I had a uh, I had a close friend that lived in Washington D.C. at the time. She was working on Capitol Hill. Uh, actually worked for Senator Cochran. And I remember the unease of not knowing if she was okay. Never mind all the other people that others knew who were trying to figure out, are my friends okay? Is my family okay? I know this is trivial, and this is in the days and weeks that follow, but I remember how strange it felt to not have college football on a September Saturday. So what, September 11th, 2001, that was a Tuesday, and all the college football games were canceled the following week. And I think, in fact I know, the first college football game that was played once again happened in Starkville. It's an incredibly patriotic beginning to a night uh, for the return of college football. And it was something to be celebrated. I will forever remember that first pitch that President Bush threw out at Yankee Stadium before game one of the World Series. He, um, I guess, was wearing body armor underneath his presidential kind of lightweight jacket. Talk about an image of power. Just kind of strolling out to the mound, not even toying with standing in front of the mound, but immediately taking the rubber giving the thumbs up to the entire stadium, and then delivering the absolute perfect strike. As good a first pitch ceremonially as you will ever see. As an image of strength. Would not have been the same image if he had bounced it in at home plate. There's a lot of pressure on him to make a good first pitch there. What stands out to you? Hey, Dad, you and I are roughly the same age, so you would have been, what, 20 years old, 23 years old? 2001? I would have been uh, 25. Okay, so you were 25. I was about to be 21. That was September of 2001. I turned 21 in November of 2001. Borky, how old were you? I was nine. Rippy? Five. Or six. Five or six. Yeah. So probably the way, hey, Dad, that you and I remember it would be a little bit different than the way that Borky and Rippy remember that day. But I don't think any of us are devoid of memories because I can think back to when I was even younger, like in 1986 when the Challenger space shuttle exploded. That was like one of the news events that kind of shaped how I watched news. And I was five, I think, at the time. And I remember when baby Jessica was trapped in a well. <laughs> that, that may be a story that a lot of people that listen have never even heard of. But it was like this news coverage that was never ending. So when we come back, I want to hear from you guys what you remember about September 11th, 2001. Rippy, hey dad, Borky, and you as well on the C Spire text line 601-879-4395. A lot of reaction from you on the ceasefire text line to some of the things that you remember from September 11th and the days and weeks that followed. We will get to as many of these as we can. Thanks for reaching out. 601-879-4395 on the ceasefire text line if you would like to be a part of the conversation. 
Jeff said it would be great if we could still live like we did on September 12th of 2001. Richard and Wiggins says he was in the National Guard at the time. He was a combination of mad and scared all at the same time. Mike from Grand Bay, Alabama, he says, We still are all Americans, regardless of political difference. That's what makes us special. I don't disagree with that, Mike. Jeffrey and Tupelo, I'll never forget. I was in 11th grade United States history class. I immediately thought of my uncle, who was a truck driver who drove to New York City every single week. Scott and Clinton says, I still cry like a baby when I see clips of Ronan Tynan sing God Bless America at Yankee Stadium. Matt in Newsite. I love this because of the specificity of it. I was in Miss Clifford's 8th grade math class when the principal came over the intercom and said that there was an attack. Brett says, it was so odd to not see any planes in the air. So if you live in a small town, if you live in Tupelo or Oxford or Canton, it may not be the best example. Small towns in Mississippi where you're not in a direct flight path to a major airport, it's probably not a big deal to look up in the sky and for, I don't know, a period of hours not actually see an airplane. And if you do, it's a small plane or one that's way up in the sky just kind of making its way to wherever it's headed. But if you live in a place like Memphis or close to the airport in Jackson or in Gulfport with the approaching flight path, or certainly in a big city like Washington, D.C., or New York, or Los Angeles, or Chicago, where just part of the skyline is constant air traffic, to look up and see none at all, pretty crazy. Hey, Dad, what about you? What stands out? What do you remember vividly from that day 18 years ago? What's interesting is, you know, this is obviously long before social media, before, you know, I, I don't I don't think I had a cell phone at that time, and I had to go to work that morning. Uh, so I went in, you know, this is back in my pizza days, and uh, my wife and I just had the one car, so I caught a ride with somebody, and I get in the car, and he's like, I think we're under attack. Because, I, you know, I had just gotten up and gone to work. I didn't turn on the TV or anything like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I think somebody, you know, has attacked us. So I go to work. Well, there's no TVs at work. You know, there's no Twitter for me to look at or anything like that. So I spent the first eight hours of the day, people just coming in. Have you seen what? I know I haven't seen what's happened. I I just know what everybody's telling me about it. And uh, anytime there's something that's going to put people in front of a television, that's a day that you're going to be busy at a pizza place. So obviously, you know, you don't project for that. So we were just busy the whole day. So that helped kill the time, but people are still just coming in like, oh my God, have you seen what's happened? I know I haven't seen what's happened. So I remember getting home finally at like 7, 8 o'clock that night and having to play catch up and looking at all, mm-hmm. and you know, everybody, I was like the last, one of the last guys to know that like what has happened. And I sat down and, you know, turned it on CNN and, and watched and I mean, it's just unbelievable. Forky, what stands out for you? I do remember it, um, not vividly like some, because uh, I was nine, but I do remember that uh, we're in the same school system. So I went to Malden Elementary, Malden Middle, and Malden High School, all the same thing. And eighth graders in our school system every year, if, if you meet a certain GPA and stuff like that, you get to go on a big field trip. They called it Sandlapper Club, and it rotated from Washington, D.C., 
uh, Myrtle Beach, uh, I forget, there was one other, I think it was Atlanta, and then New York City. And our 8th graders that year were in New York City on that day. So my class, my 4th grade class is in what was called Science Lab, and where you like, we dissected frogs, that kind of stuff, in Science Lab, and we got pulled out like 10 minutes into being Science Lab. And that was the coolest part of your week, because you didn't sit in a boring classroom, you got to play with stuff. They pull us out of the classroom or out of science lab and bring us back to our room. And we had a sub that day. And I remember this because she was a very close family friend of ours, Bonnie Wallen. And we walk in and she's just crying. And she said she wasn't allowed to tell us much, but that something is going on um, in New York City. And we've called all your parents and they're going to pick you up and take you home. And that took a couple of hours to get everybody's parents out of work and come pick us up. So I'm nine years old. And we knew nothing really until my parents picked me up from school and then kind of sat me down and tried to explain it the best they could to a nine-year-old to get it. Um, but that's what I remember is our, our eighth graders were in New York City, and because of the no cell phone thing, they were stuck on some tour bus somewhere. Nobody heard from them for a very long time. So the initial thought was they're in trouble, they're caught up in this somehow, and thankfully they were uh, they were not, but... I remember that vividly because in one school system where everybody goes to the same place, it was somebody's brother or neighbor or something that was in yeah, New York no City doubt. at the time. That's remarkable. Rippy, do you have any memories? I mean, you, you said you were five, six years old at the time. No, I really, I mean, I do remember some of it. None of it's like vivid. I just remember being in school and I think they like. I remember like teachers like being pulled out of the room, and then I think for a brief second they pulled some like TVs in to like the classrooms where like the rolling TVs or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the you know round screens because flat screens were a thing back then. But then I, I think we got out of school like pretty swiftly after that. So both my parents worked, so we had a babysitter, and I like went home and like I mean I remember like having the TV on and watching some of the news clippings when I was six. I don't I didn't remember hardly. I mean I didn't like fully. You weren't a news junkie at six. I was not a uh, morning Joe regular at six years old, but that's about all I remember from it. I didn't like grasp really what was going on or anything like that. I mean I kind of had an idea, but not really. You know it's it's fascinating to me that if you were, I don't know, a teenager or older, then it's probably kind of seared into your memory. Like Brian in Tupelo, he says, changing classes from math to history my junior year at Nettleton High School. Our history teacher was a passionate history buff and a military veteran, and he rolled in the TV and spent an hour helping us digest the tragic and historic events. I'm Jeff from Oxford. I was 16 on 9-11-2001. I remember specifically the conversation I was having when the news broke. I was talking to a classmate about the Ole Miss-Auburn game that happened three days prior that was Eli Manning's first SEC start. Huh. Tyler in Starkville was in 10th grade. Remember after football practice walking over to watch a JV game and everyone in the bleachers being very nervous out in the open. But that, that That's the thing. It was like you were probably in a safe place. You were in Starkville at the time. Starkville, Oxford, Hattiesburg, Gulfport. None of those places were targets that we knew of. And yet, there was this feeling of uncertainty and fear. I was in Henderson, Tennessee at the time. So I went to Ole Miss my freshman year, and then I left for a year and a half. I had grown up in Oxford, and I went to a, a small private school in West Tennessee. 
uh, close to Jackson, Tennessee, called Freed Hardeman University. And you know, talk about a dot on the map. I mean, there's like one stoplight in the town, despite having a, a small college. But there is this uncertain feeling of, are, are we safe? And then on top of that, you had the, okay, what can I do feeling aftermath. There's like the, um, so do I like get in my truck and drive to New York and volunteer to help? I mean, that's probably not very practical. But that feeling of help, helplessness uh, existed. Stan and Ripley says, Richard, I work for Caterpillar in Corinth, and the generator that was at the Pentagon that day was actually hit and damaged. It's on the same side where the plane hit. I think it turned on and ran for a bit. They sent it back to us. We cleaned it up, and now it's sitting in front of Caterpillar in Corinth, and a memorial is set up there. We built the engine. Stan, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Louis says, my A&P student sat in stunned silence except for an occasional sniffle. Hal in Columbus says he was in a wing commander staff meeting when it happened and that life changed that day forever. I was in room 218 at Baptist Hospital in Boonville working with a patient on their physical therapy when they broke in on the Today Show with the first reports. David in Oxford says, I was a coach, Connard's advanced English class my freshman year of high school. Oh, I'm sorry. I was in Coach Connard's advanced English class my freshman year of high school, and they sent someone door-to-door telling us what happened and told us all to watch the television. Two months away from being married, like most Americans of age, I strongly considered joining the military. Kind of regret that I didn't. Hmm. We'll continue to uh, read some of your recollections from that day. We will, I promise, get to some college football stuff and some sports stuff, but we don't do this very often. feels like a day where it's important, though, to stop and remember the lives that were lost and the lives that were changed forever as a result of the attacks on American soil 18 years ago today. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. We're still Mississippi with you on this Wednesday afternoon, September 11th, and we are remembering a, a little bit. Won't do this for the entire show this afternoon. Uh, in fact, may kind of wrap it up after this segment, but you've sent so many text messages, and I appreciate that. I ask you for some of what you remembered from that day, what stood out in your mind, and these are fascinating to me because we were all just kind of doing our thing, whatever our thing was, whether it was work or school or You were sick or you were dealing with something going on in your family and the world stopped for everybody. And for many of us, we remember exactly what was going on when the world stopped. Andrew from Dennis says, no matter what else happened during George Bush's presidency, the defining moment in my mind was him standing in the rubble at ground zero with a megaphone. I was in second grade then, and I'll never forget the way it felt seeing a president stand up and say that they'd hear us hear from us soon and that justice was coming. It says also that ceremonial first pitch stuck in my head. Never will forget that moment. One of the, um, I mean, comparing that to the greatest sports moments, that right there, everything around that moment signifying that, 
you know, we're moving forward and we're not scared of anybody. And he goes out there and throws a strike with a bulletproof vest on. Yeah. How about this? Holland and Carrollton. I was living in South Haven. I was on a plane from Memphis to Atlanta. We landed and they shut the Atlanta airport down. Never did get my luggage. Wow. Whew. Um, Makes Thomas, you remember Flight 93 as well. That kind of, it doesn't get lost in all of this. There's just so much to, to think about and talk about and remember that um, it doesn't get brought up as much. But the people on Flight 93. You want to talk about heroes? Storming the cockpit the way they did. Uh, I've seen the picture of a transcript of one of the, the voicemails that uh, one of the guys that did that left to his wife and mm-hmm. it just makes you feel the uh, one where he says hey just want you to know I'm thinking about you and I love you yeah that uh, um, our, our plane's been hijacked and uh, hopefully I'll see you uh, when this is over Ooh, just uh, couldn't imagine and then they take one of the service carts and storm the cockpit and make sure that it's only them that goes down and, and then yeah. we learn that the planes uh, the the, the fighter jets that were tailing that plane didn't have any... Uh, they weren't armed. So that, the pilots was, in the planes were deciding whether they should... Ram, and they were willing to and were going to ram that plane and kill themselves to to save wherever that plane was headed. I read that story on Politico this morning. Um, female pilot in one plane and her commanding officer in the other. They had just gotten back from a training exercise in Las Vegas, and so they still had dummy ammunition on the plane. And she got in and was accustomed to doing a pre-flight check that lasted about half an hour. And he looked at her and he said, Penny, what are you doing? Let's go. You know, from, from the other plane. And said her plane started rolling while there were still technicians on the ground that had their headphones plugged into the f- fuselage. They were running beside her plane as it was beginning to taxi to just close everything up. And they took off that day knowing full well. And it turns out that her father, who was a former fighter pilot as well, was a United pilot. And she had no idea if potentially he was the one that was flying that plane. And their plan going up was that her commanding officer was going for the cockpit and she was going for the tail. And for a long time she didn't talk about it but says, I realized that my mission that day was to go in and be a pseudo-kamikaze pilot. Which is unbelievable. Um, Thomas in Greenwood worked at the phone company at the time. He said, I worked late into the night getting more trunks up to handle all the phone calls that night. The phone traffic was unbelievable, even in the Mississippi Delta then the government got involved since they thought the telecom companies might be attacked as well. Sean and Grenada says, my wife was at one of the airports a week before the hijacking. Hmm. Mike in Grand Bay says, the Mississippi Gulf Coast could very well have been a target if you think about it. And I suppose so with the shipbuilding that happens at Ingalls. 
Sophomore at Mississippi State, walking to class, meeting classmates walking the wrong way, gave me the news, went to the KA house and watched for hours on an old-school big screen. One of those projector TVs. Hmm. Somebody pointed out, I think it was uh, Dan in Charleston, that as a child of the 60s, he vividly remembers JFK's assassination. And so this is another uh, event that kind of stands out. George in West Point, longtime listener. I was in the Mississippi National Guard when 9-11 happened earlier that year. I had a dream one night that my guard unit was drawing desert camo told my fellow guard member about the dream. Their reaction was, well, I hope that doesn't happen. In 2003, we were mobilized, left West Point, and headed to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where we received desert camo en route to Iraq. Went to Iraq in 2003 when I was 51 years old. Back in 1972, I served a year in South Vietnam. Proud for a chance to serve my country again. So George served in Vietnam in 1972, and in 2003 was deployed to Iraq. Thank you, George. How about this? After being out of military 15 years, now married with a wife and children, I watch TV all night. My, life, my wife looked at me and said, I don't know what you're going to do, but do it. I joined the Navy again and spent a year in Afghanistan. I celebrated my 40th birthday in Salerno, Afghanistan, Oh, I forgot to mention, I had just been elected alderman here in Corinth. That's from Chip. Wow, Chip. It's unbelievable. Out of the military for 15 years, at home with a wife and child, life moving on, and you rejoin the military. Just remarkable. And there were stories like that that were from all over the place. My brother, a former Navy pilot, was a United Airlines pilot that day. I can't adequately describe how relieved I was to hear his voice later that day when I finally got through to him by phone. That's from Mike in Hattiesburg. says he was actually scheduled to fly out of Boston that day, not on one of the ill-fated flights. Later described flying the first passenger plane into Chicago some days later and seeing all the ground crews there cheering for them said it's hard to properly dock a plane with tears in your eyes. Goodness. Really appreciate you sharing some of those stories. Somebody pointed out also Keesler Air Force Base is in Biloxi, Columbus Air Force Base, Meridian Naval Station. Any of those could have been targets. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. And, and I was not trying to make light of saying that we felt safe. I guess it was just kind of the point that in comparison to New York City and Washington, D.C., yeah, we were in Mississippi. But when you started looking around and you start thinking about, well, where, where else, what else, you couldn't help but be nervous. Appreciate all of, uh, all of you sharing some of what you remember. Wes in Batesville says he was in the Air Force stationed in Idaho. I was coming in late that day because I was supposed to be picking up a new member of our squadron at the airport in Boise. Needless to say, his flight was delayed. Lived off all, all, I lived off base and was called in early. 
and had missed the initial report. So I'm driving to base trying to wrap my mind around what's going on due to the nature of our unit and my part in it. I had mock bombs, think sticks, dynamite with a kitchen timer attached to it, saying it took me longer to get on base that day is an understatement. My two biggest takeaways, my best friend at the time was from New Jersey and his reaction to it and how united the country was for a good time after that. Here's one more. I was in the Army training in the Air Force deployment unit from Keesler at Camp Shelby that day. We went from training them to deploying them to New York. Wow. Cody in Afghanistan. My step-granddad, Dr. Horton Taylor, was a brigadier general, retired and re-listed in his early 60s after 9-11. Got in shape and was a combat physician in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Wow. How about that, Cody? A 60-year-old-plus grandfather who was a retired brigadier general re-enlisted to go be a combat physician. Just remarkable stories. And we're sitting in Mississippi. We're not sitting in New York or in Washington. That's the thing. The stories of 9-11 affected everybody everywhere. They either affected us directly or we knew somebody who were directly affected by those. Sue in Greenwood, don't you wish the United States today was still like the United States of the day after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Sports Talk Mississippi, thanks for being with us on this Wednesday in the Renaissance Bank studio. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll wrap up the hour like this. I I just want to share a few more of these texts that have continued to come in. Greg and Nettleton says, I was working with an engineering firm out of Tupelo at that time uh, on the airport on two airport jobs, Monroe County and Houston. Work was going on everywhere. Planes were flying in and out, machinery. There were workers everywhere. And after that day, no planes and work slowed to a crawl. So he'll never forget, as a result, just how his day-to-day work changed. And that lasted for a long time. He said he was actually parking his truck on the runway. Um... This one stood out to me as well. Matt in News Site said, My grandfather tried to re-enlist in the Army after being out since Korea. He was 71. <laughs> wow. Um, Mike says, Generals don't enlist, but may be on recall after retirement and have to respond as needed, and not just officers, but retired enlisted individuals can be recalled if the specialties are needed. Okay. Don't be butt actually, guy, Mike. Stan says, you know, stick to sports can take a back seat today. Love hearing all these stories from everyone. Yeah, I appreciate all of you. A bunch of you have reached out and said that you're enjoying hearing some of these stories. Uh, There was one I saw just a second ago. Uh, Said he was in kindergarten and had very few memories. I'm paraphrasing here because there's so many tweet or texts that have come in. I'm having trouble finding exactly where it is. But the gist of it was I was in kindergarten, and I don't remember much, but I remember that day. said that his teacher turned on the television, saw what was going on, tried to get all the kids to play, but he continued to kind of keep an eye on the TV and his teacher. And when the second plane hit, 
she screamed and started crying and turned the TV off. And they turned it back on when the towers fell. He remembered his parents picking him up from school early uh, that day as well. You know, the, the, the thing that stands out to me in all of this and, and again, I'll go back to where we kind of began. I say, you know, I'd love to see us as a country get back to a place where selflessness and patriotism and caring for others is more important than political races and who can lob the biggest bombs on social media and whatever else. But in seeing these stories, you see people who were just looking for a way to help have people who had been out of the military for decades saying, hey, I'll sign back up. People who had maybe never even thought of being in the military saying, I'm in. Was that was that Pat Tillman's story? Was that when he left the NFL? Yeah. And enlisted and ultimately became a Ranger? Yes. Here's a text. A couple of years after 9-11, a buddy of mine in boot camp told me his mom worked in the World Trade Center. She got off the subway that morning oh no, and realized that she had left her office keys at home, and so she got back on the subway and was headed home when the planes hit. Wow. <laughs> I was in Jackson, Mississippi, installing a sprinkler system in a lady's yard, and she came running out of the front door in her nightgown yelling, about the bombing. She said, they're bombing us, they're bombing us. I'll never forget it. My brother was Special Forces. He was an Army Ranger. He was deployed... Oh, my goodness. He was deployed and was on the ground in Afghanistan within three hours of the towers coming down. Didn't hear from him for eight months. That's hard for me to wrap my mind around that timeline. But when you're talking about someone who was in special forces, there are things that happen many times before we know them. Right? I mean, the the, the full-on assault and the quote-unquote war on terror would be a little farther down the line before we really started... What, the attacks in Iraq and Afghanistan and all of those things. I mean, set all of your political beliefs about how all of that unfolded aside for a second. But that there must have been some sort of immediate intelligence for a special forces group to be deployed that quickly? Paul and Meridian says, thank you for setting sports aside for a while. We need to make sure our country and children do not forget September 11th. That's just what we wanted to do in this first hour. we got a bunch to get to, and we're going to kind of move the conversation in the direction of college football and sports and all that's going on in uh, kind of normal world. But I uh, hope that was um, cathartic for you in this first hour. Sports Talk Mississippi, glad to have you along. More coming up with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. I want to read this last message before we go to uh, John Harris on the Farm Bureau phone line. 
Jason, who now lives in Flagstaff, has been a long-time listener to the show, said that he had just gotten to Bosnia on what at the time was a NATO-UN peacekeeping mission, and within 12 hours his mission had changed. They were loading ammo onto tanks, getting ready to quick uh, reinforce forces for get quick action response stuff for rangers and special operations going into raid places to catch al-Qaeda operatives within their area of operations. He said, we had special forces, CIA people on the ground with us in Bosnia from Fort Benning, Georgia, within 24 hours, and said that there are certain units in the United States, like the 101st Airborne out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and the 82nd out of Fort Bragg, whose response time is supposed to be 24 hours in force anywhere in the world. It's pretty remarkable. I just had not, I guess, previously thought about how quickly some of the response began globally with our special operations forces. Jason, appreciate that message. Sports Talk Mississippi with you on this Wednesday afternoon. First hour was about remembering some of the stories from September 11th, 2001. Right now we'll transition to the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. John Harris from the Houston Texans, the Houston Texans Radio Network. Jay Harris Football on Twitter. John, what a roller coaster of emotions on Monday night in the Dome. There is a lot to unpack from that football game. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're telling me. It was, uh, you know, sometimes you're fortunate to be part of a, a game like that. And we've had a few of them over the last couple of years since number four has been under center. And that's the way we feel in Houston that, hey, look, when we when when he's under center, we feel like we have a chance. And if there are any Clemson fans out there, they're going, oh, yeah, we felt that same way for the three years he was in Clemson. But, you know, we got such great performances from guy. You know, DeAndre Hopkins proved again that he is such an elite receiver. I think he's the best in the league. Some people might argue Michael Thomas is in that conversation as well. He had a decent night. Alvin Kamara was just an absolute dude for the Saints all night long. But considering the, all the changes that we had made in such a short amount of time, to see those changes really all pay off. Laramie Tunsil played very, very well. Carlos Hyde came in and gave us something in the run game, and we didn't even think that was possible. And then Kenny Stills catches the what could have been the game-winning touchdown that put us ahead with 37 seconds left. So they, all the new additions that came in the last week had significant impact on that game. But I'll tell you this, I've been in the Superdome before for different events. I saw Alabama-Miami 1992 in the Sugar Bowl there. It was incredible. I yeah. saw the Chris Webber timeout game in the Final Four there. But those are that's a different environment when you go in there for a Saints game. And I give credit to, to my headphones, Bose. Man, if you have some Bose headphones, man, those are some of the best because I put my noise canceling on, and I could hear our broadcast. I was really worried about that. When that field goal went through and I was standing right underneath the uprights, I ripped those headphones off, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, it's loud. Holy smoke. So it was an unbelievable night. Uh, I wish we would have walked out of there with a W, but – Man, we just we lost a close one to one of the best teams in the league, with one of the best offensive lines in the league, with one of the best running backs in the league, best receiver in the league, one of the greatest all-time quarterbacks. And on their building in that game, coming off the NFC Championship, to play the way that we did, there's a lot of positives you can take out of it. But ultimately, not a W. So hopefully we'll take on Gardner Minshew this week and, and knock them off and get our first W right here at Energy Stadium. You know, John, normally when, when I'm at a college football game, I'm in the, the position that you're in, on the sidelines, working, you know, earbuds in, 
And so I, like you, will from time to time take them off, trying to kind of, okay, what's the crowd noise really like? So I was in a different spot where I was just sitting there watching a game and was sitting in one of the end zones, I guess the end zone where the uh, the kick to when it happened, kind of over in the corner but underneath the overhang. And I said, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to fight against recency bias here because it just was on Monday night. I don't think I've ever been in a venue that was louder than that was for extended, sustained periods of time. Is that a thing all over the NFL? Are, are NFL fans, do, do they just take the football intelligence to a different level? And, and I ask that because, you know, thinking about Saints fans in particular on Monday night, when the Saints were on offense, it was relatively quiet in there. But when it was time to play defense, they made it a living hell on Deshaun Watson trying to hear himself think. Yeah, it was it was tough. I was watching our guys in the huddle, and they were in the huddle, 11 guys in a huddle, and I'm telling you, there was probably not two feet of distance in between them as Deshaun was calling the play. So they were all like jammed in a huddle trying to figure it out, and that's why I was I was – I was happy with what we did offensively because we were, we were dealing with all of that. And Laramie Tunsil had been there for six days. And Kenny Stills had been there for six days. And our offensive line had been a little bit banged up. You know, Titus Howard, a first-round pick, didn't play. He was inactive, still coming back from a hand injury. So there was a lot of change going on, and yet our third-year quarterback was able to handle it. And our guys adjusted, our coaching staff really handled that really well. Now I'll tell you this, Richard, I've been to every NFL I've been to every NFL outpost. Not for regular season games and every one, but I've been to most of them. I haven't been to Chicago and I haven't been to Detroit. And we go there next year. So that'll that'll make a clean sweep throughout. I have not been to a lot a louder place. Now Kansas City fans will be like, hey, you haven't been to our place. We'll find out week five. But I There's no roof though. Couldn't for the life of me. I couldn't for the life of me. Like I, I, it was, it was unbelievable. I talked to people on a plane, and I just would ask them, "How loud was it?" And they, without a doubt, like didn't didn't bat out. Oh, it's the loudest ever. It's the loudest I've ever been in. I mean, we had people coming home on the plane like with headaches because it was that it was that loud in that building. And I, I thought something was really interesting. Richard Zach Street, who is now the play-by-play man for the New Orleans Saints, he went from being yep. an offensive tackle to not being a play-by-play man for the Saints. And I think he does a, a pretty decent job. He's only in his second year. But he tweeted out earlier in the day, he said, he said, hey, fans, let me know who your section leader is. You're in charge of making that place as loud as possible. And so they have unofficial section leaders throughout the whole place. And they kind of get each section amped up, and then they tweet it to Zach Street, and then he gives them a shout-out on the game day broadcast. And I was like, you know, that's a pretty neat deal. And it's something that they really have wrapped their head behind. But there, there was so much in that game. There was so much vitriol left over from the championship game. And I looked around the stands, and Richard, I don't know if you saw it. I must have seen Everywhere. at least 100 referee shirts in the stands. At, at least just going around the first, the, the lower level for sure. I saw them all over the place. I saw at one point in the end zone, I saw somebody throwing a yellow hanky in the, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the end zone area. I think it was one opposite you. Uh, when there was a penalty called, I, I just it was such an emotional atmosphere. I know it's like that a lot of times. I know it was just amped up for that first game, and especially against us. And then when it turned out to be a great game, I think that probably amped it up even more. But it was just an incredible environment, and I give a lot of credit to Saints fans for for the environment atmosphere that they create in the building. 
I can guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt, it is not like that all places throughout the NFL. John, only a couple of minutes left in this segment. I want to talk about the rest of what we saw in week one in the NFL after the uh, the break. But I do want to – I'm curious about this. I noticed on Sunday night, kind of walking around, going to dinner, just being out in the city, there were a ton of Houston Texans fans there. Was that a function of this being game one, uh, you know, having a long time to plan, or is that kind of how the Texans have begun to travel? That's that's how we travel. We'll travel really well. We have a group called the Traveling Texans, and this group goes to various environments wherever it's going to be. And you know, New Orleans being close, yeah, that that helps. But we went to we went to Mexico City a few years ago, and there's a picture from outside. Uh, one of the, the monuments in Mexico City, and there's thousands of fans. Wherever we go, there's a good group that follows. And, and, Richard, I go back to this. In 2014, we went up to play Dallas in Arlington. And I've never experienced this in an NFL game, and I, I never ha- I don't think I ever will again. But the crowd was essentially 50-50 in Jerry World. Really? It was unbelievable. It was like, it was like a college game in a neutral environment. Because our fans travel. We, we have great fans that will travel. Our traveling Texans are great. I don't know if that's unusual. I know when we've played teams here before, like Pittsburgh, I mean, they practically fill this place up on Christmas Day in 2017. So there are certain fan bases that will travel. Ours is starting to kind of do that. And it's been really cool. And I could, I, I could hear them in the end zone when Kenny Stills made the touchdown. You could see him right in that first few rows of the end zone. And it was really cool for them to experience that environment. But we need our place to be 100% jam-packed on Sunday for the Jaguars, and that should be pretty fun. Busy with John Harris from the Houston Texans and the Houston Texans Radio Network. You can follow him on Twitter at jharrisfootball. You can check out his website, some cool stuff there at footballtakeover.com. We're going to talk about the rest of the NFL. Uh, good dose of uh, Houston Texans and New Orleans Saints right there, but kind of what else we saw in week number one uh, there were some really impressive performances. There were some sluggish performances. There were some significant injuries. Uh, you heard John reference a second ago the fact that Gardner Minshew will be starting for the uh, the Jaguars this week after the Nick Foles injury. What did we learn from week one? We'll do that when we come back. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Sports Talk Mississippi back with you on this Wednesday afternoon, continuing our conversation with John Harris from the Houston Texans radio network. He's got a coaching background, a scouting background, a playing background. He eats, breathes, and sleeps football. So we'll talk a little bit about the rest of the NFL with him. John, I'm just going to throw some headlines at you, and then I'll kind of let you react to uh, the ones that are most interesting to you. After all the offseason hype and talk, the Browns flop in week one. Lamar Jackson throws for five touchdowns as the Ravens decimate the Dolphins. The Falcons were not very good and the Vikings were. The Jets couldn't hold a lead in the fourth quarter. Uh, Pat Mahomes is uh, still a pretty good quarterback, just in case you had forgotten. There's some really good young receivers in the NFL, and uh, that other team in your state, the state of Texas, looks to be pretty darn good as the Cowboys just thrashed the Giants, what what stands out to you? Well, uh, Richard, I'll start with uh, I'll start with the first one, then go to the last one. The first okay. one, the Browns getting throttled. <laughs> Was that the reaction <laughs> all across the league? I loved it. Baker Mayfield telling everybody, 
oh, you hate us because you ain't us, and then boom. I hate the fact that it was the Titans that did it, but I was just so happy. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's not even the players, but in this case it was it was kind of the players. Because after John Dorsey made the deal for Odell Beckham Jr., all of a sudden John Dorsey was what was right with everything in the world. Browns fans are like, this is it. And look, I'm not taking anything away from John Dorsey with what he's built with Sashi Brown's work. That never gets any credit. I mean, Sashi Brown was the one who made all the moves to get the Browns in position to make those picks. But he gave up, and this is the difference, he gave up picks, multiple picks, for a wide receiver when you're already pretty good at wide receiver. We gave up multiple picks for a 25-year-old star left tackle. And everybody was criticizing us, oh, you gave up too much. Well, then what did the Browns do to give up to get OBJ? And look, OBJ was actually pretty good. He might have been the best thing for the Browns. But when everybody, you know, SI's putting them on the cover, oh, it's the Browns, and the fans are, are you know, arguing with everybody. Look, I'll say this. Cleveland Browns fan is not that far removed from Ohio State Buckeye fan, and there is no college football fan for as, as long as I've written about college football, I've been around college football worse than Ohio State Buckeye fan. The worst. And Browns fan got a little bit of success and turned into Buckeye fan, and they got to come up in. So I loved every second of it. I don't know if I said this, Richard, last time I was on with you, or I know I've talked about this a few times in interviews I've done. The Dallas Cowboys are one of the nastiest, most physical teams I have seen. And I'm not talking about just the preseason, but I saw them in the preseason. That reminded me in the preseason. But I saw it in the regular season last year, too, that if they could get a weapon and they did Amari Cooper, then they get Zeke back. When that defense gets those pieces back and they're all healthy, I was like, this team is going to be nasty, and it is. I think the Cowboys the Cowboys might be the best team in the NFC. And I know what I'm saying. I know the Saints are very, very good. But when the Saints had to go in and play Dallas this year or last year, the Cowboys physically, physically dominated that game. I've never seen Drew Brees just beaten up the way that he was. And I, the Cowboys are nasty. I don't want any part of them until – And we'll see that matchup in week four in New Orleans this year. Yeah, and it, well, it's going to be fun. And they're going to be amped up. How about the Saints start with us at home, then the Rams on the road in week two, and then Cowboys at home week four. But they got a tough start to the season. But then again, in the NFL, everybody's got a tough start. Um, but that, to me, the Browns getting just obliterated. The Cowboys' performance, it, look, it's the Giants. The Giants are not a very good football team this year. They're, they're just just—they're one of the few teams in the league, I would say, just, okay, there's not enough talent there. But the one that you didn't mention – Richard, that I would say the performance by the New England Patriots on Sunday night was scary. Because That's where I was headed still next. Have talent offensively, there's still some talent there. It's not what it was, but there's still some talent there. And the Patriots' defense threw blankets over every Steelers receiver. Offensively, they, they shoved the ball right down the throats of the Steelers. That's maybe the best Patriots team I've seen to start a year. I saw them last year in their building, and I thought, these guys are vulnerable. And they had Gronk, but they didn't have Edelman. Now they've got Edelman, but no Gronk. But they had Josh Gordon, and that helps Brady tremendously because he's got a big physical weapon to throw to. I got a feeling Gronk's coming back this year. I just I think it's going to happen. But the Patriots, to me, as dominant as I've seen them. And they, I mean, 2007, the team was so good offensively, they just blew everybody out. But defensively, I thought they were average. This team on both sides of the ball is phenomenal to watch. Now, can they all stay healthy? And that's going to be one thing. But defensively, they completely dominated Pittsburgh, and their best linebacker was 
in uh, maternity ward with his wife, Kyle Van Oy. So the Patriots, to me, are as good as, as I've seen. Patriots, Cowboys, they probably made, to me, the most significant statements of anybody throughout the league. Those were good. The Titans, look, I still think the Titans are flawed in certain ways, but the fact that they just spanked the Browns, I wanted to. I wanted to text Mike Brable and just thank him for doing that for all of us throughout the NFL. <laughs> um, the heck do we do with this Antonio Brown story that won't go away? He could try to ignore it. I mean, you really can. But I mean, look, we've all been, you know, whether, you know, man or woman, we've all been in that situation where you know, there's there's a, you know, somebody that shows interest in you and you're like, you know, I just, I don't have interest in you that way. You know, we can be just be friends, but then you just have that relentless, like, it keeps coming at you. Like, look, I, I, I've had enough. And finally, you just like, you run away or you hide or you try and get away from it. That's kind of what this is. It's like, I don't want to hear any more about Antonio Brown. I don't want to hear any more about it. He's proven that he's not a stand-up class guy. He's not a guy that, uh, you know, from a, from an NFL perspective, that you say that's a guy you should that you should be like Saquon Barkley. That's a guy. Young people, be like Saquon Barkley. Be like Deshaun Watson. You know, be like Jared Goff and Drew Brees. Um, and be like those guys. Be like Cameron Jordan from the Saints. And then you look at Antonio Brown, and the, and the young people look at him and go, "What about that guy? That guy's one of the best receivers in the league." Yeah, but don't be like him. You know, the way that he worked his way out of Oakland, and then this obviously this lawsuit pops up, which is the worst of anything that could possibly be there. Look, this league has a lot of really good guys. It's also got a lot of jerks. Uh, not, not a lot of jerks. It's got some high-profile jerks. And unfortunately, I think Antonio Brown kind of falls in that category. And I'm not just talking about this situation. I'm talking about what he's done from the time he got to Pittsburgh. Now, he works his tail off in the offseason. I'll give him that. He catches 500 balls a day after practice. Like, that's what you want your young players doing. But then everything else? That's not the way it's done. That's not the way it's done. And, and if my son had played football, which he doesn't, he doesn't care for sports, that would have been the one thing I would have told him. It would have been like, you play for the logo on your helmet at every single level. You don't play for the name on the back of your jersey. You play for the logo on your helmet. That's who you're playing for. You play the team. Antonio Brown never got that message. Antonio Brown was playing on the name on the back of his jersey from the time he was playing little bitty ball till now. That's all that matters to him, seemingly. And that, to me... Guiles me more. It just it riles me up more than anything else. And I'm with you, Richard. I wish it would just go away. Like the NFL chooses to do something, hopefully they will. And just I hope it goes away. John, I don't think I I disagree with anything that you said. My my only remaining question is: Can New England? Can Tom Brady change that about Antonio Brown, or is it hard to get a Tiger new stripes? I think it's tough. I know a lot of people have compared it to Randy Moss. But Randy Moss was a really good teammate in all places but Oakland. Oakland, he got out there and his attitude showed. And when he was in New England, when he was in Minnesota, too, he was. you talk to people that play with Randy Moss. Bill O'Brien coached Randy Moss, and he's like, look, I'll tell you this. Randy Moss was a really good teammate. Yeah, he wanted the ball, but he was a good teammate. He was a good guy once he got past some of that immaturity stuff. He's like, Randy Moss was a guy I really enjoyed coaching. I know there have been plenty that have not truly enjoyed coaching Antonio Brown. So I think if, hmm. if, if the Patriots can't do it, then nobody can. I'll, be, I'll, I'll say it that way. Because Belichick and Brady, are, they're star whispers to a degree. But this one, oh, they're getting challenged on this one. 
Yeah, no uh, no question about that. Man, you know how much I appreciate your insight. I know that was a tough one to swallow on Monday night. It was fun to be there and uh, see it all unfold. We, we could very well look back at the end of the year and go, that was the game of the year in the NFL. Um, bummed for you guys that it didn't work out, but I know a lot of Saints fans were uh, awfully happy after that one. Look forward to talking to you soon, my friend. Absolutely, Richard. Thanks for having me, buddy. That's uh, John Harris from the Houston Texans Radio Network. Jay Harris Football on Twitter. Kind of a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> Borky, I was amused by the, the reaction when I asked him about the Browns at <laughs> Baker Mayfield, and he just started laughing. <laughs> I mean, we all saw that coming, didn't we? I mean, in the back of our minds, even if you thought this was going to be a good team and it's a week one overreaction, they still could be. But you had a rookie head coach, a quarterback that now has a bunch of film out on him, and a team that's filled with misfits and, and personalities and an offensive line that was not invested in, and suddenly you get a recipe for a butt whooping, and that's what they got. It's not all that surprising when you really think about the makeup of that team and who's leading it. Might happen a lot more this year. You're not sold on Freddie Kitchens as a leader of men? Didn't look like it on Sunday, did it? Sports Talk Mississippi. We uh, will pull things back to the state of Mississippi and take a look at Ole Miss and Mississippi State when we come back with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Sports Talk Mississippi with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippey. Hey, Dad, let's talk some uh, some Mississippi State as the Bulldogs had a media availability after practice yesterday. You um, you got to talk with Tommy Stevens a little bit. Give us an update on Tommy Stevens, what we think for Saturday, where he says his health is, etc. He said he felt fine. Said he felt great. He you know he came to the uh, the availability with nothing you know no sling or cast or anything on his arm that we could see. You know, um, basically made it sound like everything was a okay. Now he was asked. Are you limited in practice? And he gave us, I'll let Coach Moorhead answer that, which is great if we were going to talk to Coach Moorhead in that in that availability, but we were not. Um, hmm. so that said, the impression I get from talking to him, and we also got to talk to Garrett Schrader, <clears throat> is that the plan is for Tommy Stevens to start on Saturday. They may, be, they may take some precautions with him this week, uh, which would be, you know, that's just smart business, but... I, I would be surprised if anybody other than Tommy Stevens takes the first snap uh, in Starkville on Saturday. Really disappointed. I feel like Tommy Stevens probably should have trolled you guys by like wearing a neck brace or something like that to the press conference. <laughs> Just get somebody to wheel him in. Or a walking boot. Oh, yeah. A walking boot would have been good. Dennis, well, we you, thought you had a shoulder issue. Well, <laughs> well, you know, you never know. Uh, yeah, a walking boot wouldn't have been as bad because those guys all wear walking boots, even when they're not. Like injured, injured. They just wear them. But had he showed up with a neck brace on, uh, yes, that would have been something that, that got our attention. Or, or one of those like dog collar things, you know, that you put around the neck of a dog to keep him from being able to lick and scratch. <laughs> that would have been good. I've got distemper. What is, uh, what, 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 why are you wearing that? Well, they told me I wasn't supposed to lick my shoulder. It's a little sore. <laughs> God. You also had Kylan Hill who yeah. left the game on Saturday. In fact, has left both games for at least a short time, right? Uh, well, the, 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 yeah, I guess that's technically correct. He left on like the last play of scrimmage against Louisiana. 
Okay. But appears to be okay? Oh, yeah, he's fine. He, he, he's fine. He's ready to give it full go. On what was the deal against Southern Miss? He, he left with, what, a couple of minutes left in the first half? They took him so, straight to the locker room? Yeah, and it, I'll be honest with you. I'm no doctor. Only Brian Scott Rippey is a doctor. But coming off the field, I'm watching him limp off. He's having He's got his arms around the, the trainers. He's going so slow, and I'm just looking at him going, that looks really bad. And so they take him off so straight to the locker room, and okay, well, we'll find out. We get the uh, the message from MSU Relations. Stevens is out for the rest of the game. Hill's return is questionable. I tweet out, Hill's return is questionable. First play from scrimmage is a carry for Kylan Hill. And I just said, well, never mind questionable. He's fine. And it's he not questionable and, anymore. It, the only question was how many yards he was going to rush for at that point. Um, what else did uh, Kylan Hill have to say? You know, he remembers a season ago having this was his big game. And, uh, you know, he knows that he needs to have another big game, but he also knows that this time going into this game that he's got, you know, a passing game behind him that's going to should be able to open some things up. You know, State a season ago was really one-dimensional in this game, but unfortunately for Kansas State, they weren't able to stop the Bulldogs at all. Uh, and, you know, I think Fitzgerald had well over 100 yards to go with Kylan Hill going over 200 yards in this game. So, you know, with a, with a more balanced offense, I don't know that Stevens will rush for 100 yards by any stretch of the imagination, but I think State can still put points up on Kansas State. It was kind of a boring game last year, wasn't it? It was boring except for being able to watch the emergence and the sort of the, the star being born that was Kylan Hill. And of course, I, you know, I left that game thinking, okay, this guy's going to have a monster year, and I, w- I was wrong. <laughs> put it bluntly. <laughs> But there was only one really real reason that he didn't have a monster year. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. Uh, Also, Isaiah Zuber, the former Kansas State Wildcat, now a Mississippi State Bulldog. Any thoughts on playing his former team? Uh, First first chance to talk to him. So a lot of the questions we had for him were sort of, you know, what made you think about Mississippi State? We we asked him about, you know, if he's been seeing his former, talking to his former teammates. He said he's been talking with them a lot. But I got to tell you, Richard, I've never felt bad about asking a question in my life. But I did on this one because I, I didn't know. And I asked him, I said, look, you know, Bill Snyder is famous for keeping in touch with all his former players and everything. Have you, have you talked to Coach Snyder? And I'm thinking he's going to drop me with a, oh, let me tell you what he did for me. And I could see it on his face when he said, no, I haven't, I haven't, he hasn't contacted me. I haven't, I haven't talked to him. And I was just like, oh my God, I, I wanted to apologize. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Isaiah. I didn't mean to bring up a hurtful memory. But I was really surprised to find out that Bill Snyder had not gotten in contact with him at all, considering that all we ever hear about is him writing handwritten letters to everybody who's ever, you know, worked as a janitor at that stadium. But he didn't. Hmm. He, hadn't, he hasn't reached out to, uh, to Isaiah Zuber yet. Fair enough. Rippy, you were in Oxford yesterday. Jeff Coons, the um, linebackers coach, talked to you guys, talked a little bit about the impact of losing Momo Sonogo. What did you learn? Really just the same thing as they said Monday, and as I wrote about Monday, it's just same rotation, not moving anybody in or out. Both the Mike and Jack linebacker are responsible for the calls, and that's what they're going with. What about the play of Luke Knox earlier, or early this year? He's younger brother of Dawson Knox, who's now tied end in the NFL. Um, are they surprised with what they've gotten out of him? Maybe a little. Maybe they're. I, I would think it's probably him contributing a little, probably a little bit before they thought whether they want to admit it or not. But he had a pretty good spring, missed the first two weeks of camp, and then once he got on the field, it stuck. So I don't think his snap load will be decreasing anytime soon. Ole Miss's staff was pretty confident that they were getting 
a really good running back in Snoop Connor. Even though maybe some people didn't evaluate him in the same way, what Derek Nix have to say about Snoop Connor and kind of what he brings to the team from a running perspective? Nothing really in particular other than just talking about them being deep in the rotation and having four backs helps keep guys fresh and keep Scotty Phillips fresh in the fourth quarter because it was one of those things where Connor just kind of happened to get carries in the fourth quarter or more of his carries in the fourth quarter last week, but it was just more about the running back room being deeper and him being a big part of that. Do they think the running back or the running game can continue to get better? I'm sure there's things that they can improve on, but I think they were pretty pleased with how it went last week. And as those younger guys continue to progress and are comfortable with more of the playbook, they'll probably be able to open it up a little bit more. As far as better, I would think they would always think that. Any thoughts on the difference in the running game from week one to week two? I mean, they had more consistent success. It looked more like the second half against Memphis and the carries dispersion was different, but that was probably more so a product of them having the ball more and not going three and out so much in the second half. So I think they were happy they run, they ran the ball with consistent success, but Arkansas also sucks. You think Memphis's defensive front is significantly better than Arkansas's defensive front? No, I would say Arkansas's is probably better, but I don't know about significantly. I would say they're in the same neighborhood, but I would say Arkansas probably has better athletes. So, so, But you say just a second ago, I mean, Arkansas is terrible, and, and yet when you're looking at that specific part of Arkansas, surely that says something if Arkansas's front seven was better than what you saw against Memphis and the production was that much better. Sure, some, but they were on the field a lot more because their offense didn't do anything and didn't move the ball, and Ole Miss kind of wore them down. I guess there's something to that. They're okay. I mean, their their front seven is okay. Their secondary is not very good, and their offense was atrocious, and it's not a very good combination. How much of it was a function of that of Ole Miss being better versus, you know, kind of overall on the offense? Oh, uh, there's some of that. The offensive line definitely performed better for week one, and week two. They performed better in week two than they did in week one. I mean, so I think there was, and you saw more of Nick Broker, and so I think they definitely improved a lot up front from week one to week two. And I think that probably showed some just because, I mean, Arkansas is probably better than Memphis up front. Scotty Phillips at five and a half yards of carry. But, you know, I guess you'll see once you get into more, comp- I don't want to say competent defenses, but maybe a lot deeper and a little better defenses. Which you won't necessarily see this week, but for the following two weeks, you're absolutely going to see that. Cal is good defensively, and then Alabama obviously is Alabama. Yeah, I mean, that'll probably tick back up next week. Won't be able to tell a lot. But, yeah, sure. I mean, that would... How much the offense has improved and how fast and kind of where they are will be gauged better over the next two weeks after this weekend. When you have a team like Ole Miss that is not elite in college football, do you still get the kind of business approach to this? Are you concerned about a letdown from going to your first SEC game to – a team out of the Sunbelt Conference, you get the impression that there's any concern about that? I wouldn't think so. They're trying to scrap up wins any way they can, and so I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, if you have trouble with you know, FCS Southeast Louisiana, you probably got bigger issues on your hands, so I wouldn't think so. Not a ton of news coming out of Oxford this week, considering it's southeastern Louisiana on, uh, on Saturday, but Ole Miss certainly has got to go out and try and take care of business in that game. We got more coming up with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm and the Renaissance Bank Studio, Renaissance Bank, understanding you. 
Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. So the recent plight for Antonio Brown that has largely been caused by his own ridiculousness has got a new layer. If you missed this story last night, earlier today, here it is. Antonio Brown of the New England Patriots, the most prominent wide receiver in the NFL, at least considered that way by some, has been accused of raping a woman who worked as his trainer, according to a federal civil lawsuit filed Tuesday in the Southern District of Florida. Lawsuit says that Brown, in three separate incidents, two in June of 17, another in May of 2018, sexually assaulted a woman named Brittany Taylor, a gymnast who he met while they were attending Central Michigan together and whom he later hired as a trainer. Lawsuit was filed one day after Brown became a Patriot following a brief and turbulent tenure with the Oakland Raiders that ended when he requested his release last week. Late Tuesday night, the Patriots issued a statement saying that the NFL planned to do its own investigation of the accusations against Brown. Darren Heitner, Antonio Brown's attorney, says, quote, and this was in a release, Mr. Brown denies each and every allegation in the lawsuit. He will pursue all legal remedies to not only clear his name, but to also protect other professional athletes against false accusations. If you want to read the details of the lawsuit, you are welcome to. We will not outline those on the radio because they're fairly racy. And certainly not making light at all of the lawsuit. There is a reason that the legal system is in place. They'll figure it out there. It just complicates things even further for the mercurial Antonio Brown and kind of puts the Patriots in a weird spot. It does, but man, it, it, I feel like I'm making light of this as well, but it, the Patriots are not getting or did not get any amount of grief that, let's say, the Panthers would have gotten if they would have signed him. It's almost, like Everybody just made a running joke about when he was acting like a clown and got cut from Oakland. Everybody was just like, oh, he's probably going to sign with the Patriots now, and Sure enough, he does. And then and he that, did. And it's just a running joke for everybody when in reality, this dude probably doesn't need to be playing football. He needs help, like clinical help. And just giving him more money and more spotlight is probably not the best thing for him, clearly. And yet, if it was anybody else in the NFL, it would have been scrutinized. But instead, it's New England and everybody jokes about Belichick and Brady and that's no big deal. And he's going to play on Sunday. No, no big deal. I don't know what John Harris said was interesting. That from a football-only standpoint, an unquestioned work ethic that was evident in Pittsburgh, but the ability to get along with others and the interest in being in the spotlight and being all about himself is causing problems for Antonio Brown. You know, you you look at the Patriots and what they've done through the years, bringing guys in that it didn't seem like, and it always kind of seems to work out. You wonder how many times you can go to the well on that. Is is the culture of the Patriots, <laughs> led by Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, is it impenetrable to bad characters? 
Because this does not seem like a guy that you're excited about bringing into your locker room. You may be excited to see him on the field on Sundays because from a performance standpoint, he's really, really good. Really good. One of the four or five best in the NFL. Some say he's the best. Argue that however you want to. DeAndre Hopkins, Michael Thomas, Julio Jones, Antonio Brown, kind of all in that group together. Probably just a step ahead of the group that includes A.J. Green and Amari Cooper and some others. So the, the, the talent level is elite. I guess, though, you know, you, you made the point, jokes about the Patriots, oh, they'll figure it out, he'll go to the Patriots, he'll be fine there. I mean, this is so incredibly cliche, but the whole if you play with fire and play with fire and play with fire, you eventually get burned. Is this the time where the Patriots get burned? Or is that culture and that leadership and that locker room strong enough with Belichick and Brady and the others that have been there for a while that if it doesn't work out, they'll just kick him out of there and move on? We'll find out, but the way they beat Pittsburgh the other night, the narrative was, wow, look at how good they are, and then they get to add Antonio Brown. I kept thinking, look at how good they are. Why would they want to add that to that team? Because they were just flat-out dominant. And you put that kind of personality in your, in your locker room, you could screw everything up. So I guess maybe I'm a contrarian on this one just because, but why would you want to add that personality to a team that was that dominant like that? I wouldn't touch it. College Football Fix is coming up in just a bit. When we come back, we'll jump on the Farm Bureau phone line with Ryan Brown from Jocks in Birmingham. We'll talk a little bit about Alabama and Auburn and other things in the SEC with him. That's when we continue with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Sports Talk Mississippi brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online at mslandbank.com. They've been financing and refinancing land for over 100 years. If you're in North Mississippi and you've got land financing needs of any kind, Check them out, mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. Let's go to the Farm Bureau phone line, check out favorites.com, and go with the home team. Uh, What has turned into an almost weekly conversation with Ryan Brown from uh, WJOX in Birmingham, co-host of the Jocks Roundtable, Mornings in Birmingham. Ryan, we talked a little bit yesterday about the... um, Oh, the drama surrounding kickoff times for Alabama home games when it's non-conference. I don't know that many people have got a ton of sympathy. I do think, and and this came up yesterday in our conversation, maybe the one point that is worth mentioning is LSU always plays night games, and nobody seems to have a huge problem with that. So what do we make of all of this? Uh, and I think the bottom line to Alabama's argument, though they won't say this, is LSU always plays night games after LSU complained that they didn't get to play enough night games. You remember that, right? Yeah. That, that, that LSU publicly complained that they were getting too many day games and it was taking away nighttime at Tiger Stadium, which is, you know, a revered tradition, obviously. And then some people started doing research. I think Cecil Hart of the Tuscaloosa News um, was the one that kind of did the research on this one. And the last 12 non-conference games, or uh, LSU had like 12 straight nighttime non-conference games. At the time, Alabama had 12 day games. So, you know, there was some sort of correlation there. And and it does seem like that uh, the majority of these September games are 
like the 11 o'clock or noon kick for Alabama. Uh, I, you know, just honestly, I, we had callers and listeners complain about the heat, but I, this was not a complaint that had come up a lot from the fans around here that Alabama always has to play these afternoon games. As if it, I'm, I'm not even sure people were aware of the numbers until Alabama brought this up. So it was just kind of weird timing by Greg Byrne to to kind of bring this up. And I'm not dumb enough to think he's bringing this up on his own. This is obviously an issue for Nick Saban, which is why he's bringing it up. I, I did make the point yesterday that I'm pretty confident that Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and Vanderbilt, those are just the three that I picked. You could probably throw Arkansas into the mix and maybe Kentucky and some others would be more than happy to trade TV schedules <laughs> with Alabama in a given year, given the fact that there's always yep. four or five CBS games and another three or four ESPN primetime games. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right about that. One, you know, a game on ABC normally there to start the season. Yeah. Um, you know, Alabama, I mean, there's never obviously any complaints about the 230 game, and you know, I mean, it's the same and. Jackson and Oxford and Starkville and places in Mississippi, it, it's just as hot, you know, as it is here in Birmingham or in Tuscaloosa um, in, in September. But, you know, once that, once that SEC schedule starts, the 230 game is the coveted game, and you really don't hear any complaining about that, even though last week's game, uh, the game Alabama played Saturday was a 3 o'clock kick, and this next one will be an 11 o'clock kick um, after the South Carolina game. So, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Alabama will probably have it you know, looked at what it'll end up being, but Alabama normally plays CBS, and that normally means you're 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 a good team. And and the other thing about this is the games that are being put at eleven o'clock are by and large terrible games. I yeah. mean you Alabama New Mexico State was at three o'clock because it's an awful game. Where else are you gonna put that? And, you know, this Alabama Southern Miss game will be a much better game. Southern Miss is a you know a better opponent. Alabama still likely will you know win that game handily, so it's not all that attractive to ESPN or, or ESPN or, or SEC Network. But the other the other aspect I wonder is if it play is it at play here is that Birmingham is routinely the number one market for college football television, right? And part of me wonders if ESPN, who's making these schedules, wants to have Birmingham freed up. Or whatever the primetime game is. It's the one thing you don't want is both Alabama and Auburn playing opposite that primetime game on ABC or ESPN or whatever, so that they've got, you know, that big market that, right, yeah, not that Birmingham's a huge market, but that they've got the number one market freed up to watch it. I don't know that that's what's at play, but part of me wonders if it is. Well, and, and there might be two things at play there. One, you free up the market to give you big primetime numbers, and also you drive a bigger number to a time slot that otherwise probably wouldn't do all that well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, Alabama, where this is network isn't rated. Um, so I wouldn't know what the, or at least they don't release the ratings. I think they do get them. I don't know that they release them. Right. Um, so I don't know what the rating would be. But, you know, in Birmingham, it's routinely, no matter who Alabama is playing, it's going to get a minimum of a 30, 35 rating, which, you know, for those that don't know how the TV ratings work, that's a percentage of households. Uh, a big Alabama game is going to be more than 50. So, you know, Saturday against South Carolina will probably be in the high 30s, low 40s, I would think, even though that could be a one-sided game. So you're you're right. That is going to help those numbers just by having Alabama in that time slot. Switching over to Auburn for a second, they have the, the crazy, exciting win in Week 1 against Oregon, and the legend of Bo Nix is born. They have kind of a ho-hum 24-6 to win this past week in Week 2. 
Um, where does this thing go for Auburn this year? I mean, despite the win against Oregon, you look at their schedule and they're probably an eight and four team, maybe nine and three when it's all said and done. Do you agree with that? Or was this just kind of the natural letdown after the emotional high of week one? No, I think this is who Auburn is. I, th- I think, you know, who they are right now. Look, Bo Nix can improve, but right now he's not a very good passer. I mean, he's in the 40s, you know, high 40% completion percentage. His yards per attempt is dead last or next to last in the SEC and just over five yards per attempt. So he's not getting the ball down the field. He's, you know, completing easy passes and the passes he's completing, which is less than half of them. They can't run the ball effectively. They had 20 rush yards in the first half against Tulane. And Bo Nix had, I think it was 29 pass attempts in the first half. Uh, some crazy amount of pass attempts in the first half in the 20s, which, you know, normally a Gus Malzahn quarterback's not going to try that many in a game. So, you know, they're, they're struggling on offense. Their defense is playing dominant, but it's not getting much help from the offense. So where does this season go? We're about to find out because they're about to hit that stretch of games that includes a road trip to uh, Texas A&M. It includes Mississippi State. It includes Florida. And I think, you know, by and large, because you got Georgia and Alabama hanging out there at the end, I think by and large, Auburn's final record, you know, is, is going to be determined in that little stretch of games there where they play, you know, kind of meat of their schedule in the middle. I know you watch everything, so I'm assuming you watched Ole Miss in <laughs> Arkansas. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't take a, uh, a football savant to look at that and go, that's eh, not the highest level game that's being played in all of college football. What did you think, though, of, of Ole Miss from week one against Memphis to week two against Arkansas? Yeah, I mean, I thought you, you can't say anything, but it was an improvement. I mean, uh, the offense looked better. Um, you know, defensively, I, th- I thought they played a tremendous defensive game against Memphis. I don't think many people are going to hold that Memphis team to what Ole Miss did, what, 15 points, and I guess two of those were actually a safety. So, you know, 13 yeah. offensive points. Um, I, you know, I, I would be interested at the end of the year to see how many teams hold Memphis to 13 offensive points. I think they're a better team than that. So, you know, I, I don't think defense was the problem at all. I just think everybody was a little surprised coming out of that first game that a Rich Rodriguez coached offense only had, you know, what was it, 173 yards? And I, I think that was the shocking thing out of all of that. So to see it against an SEC opponent, albeit now, I don't think anybody's going to argue any differently that Arkansas is the worst team in the conference. But to come in against a team like that and, and have some offensive life, I think, is what everybody was watching. And I did watch a little bit of that game. And, and honestly, Richard, my takeaway from that game is Arkansas is going to go winless in the conference again. And I, I just, you know, I know they're going to be patient with Chad Morris, but, I mean, he's about to start 0-16 in SEC play. And it's almost like they're reliving the Brett Bielema era all over again. Are, are you in the group that believes Tennessee is going to start the season 1-6? and six? I am, yeah. I mean, I, assuming they beat Chattanooga Saturday. <laughs> So, yes, I mean that—that's the one that I'm giving them. I, I guess maybe yeah, the bigger yeah. question is: Do you think that Phil Fulmer, after the one and six start, will be on the sidelines as the head coach before the year's out? You know, it's funny. So many people are bringing that up. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they'll be patient with Pruitt because what Phil Fulmer knows is, and maybe this is why he'll take over because he looks like a genius. But it gets easier after Alabama. But that stretch they've got, I just you know. There again, Mississippi State's involved in it. You know, I just talked about them in the Auburn stretch. There they are in the Tennessee stretch. But that stretch is just brutal. I mean, when you're talking about playing Florida, who's a huge rival, Georgia, Mississippi State, Alabama, 
um, there, there are a lot of teams that go one four in that stretch, and especially a team that has some of the deficiencies that Tennessee has. So, I mean, even if they find a way to spring the upset in there over State or somebody like that, or Florida, I mean, it still could be a two, you know, a two and five start. It's not like you've, yeah. you've sprung an upset, but what it accomplished, you know, you're two and five and still one and six. Yeah, he's the coup master though, and we know there's plenty of ego there. So if he could come in out of the wings and take a team from one and six to five and seven, you're saying if he if he could if he can overthrow Johnny Majors, he can overthrow like Jeremy Pruitt. I I mean I'm I'm just saying he, he, he's overthrown a, a popular head coach. He's overthrown an unpopular athletics director to get that job. I mean, who's to say he might not do it one more time? Well, it'd be an awful quick trigger. Uh, awful it quick would. trigger. And I, expensive. I, I, do think, I do think they're staring at one and six, though. I really do. Yeah. I, I don't see much way they can avoid it the way they're playing right now. Ryan, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Richard. Y'all be good. That's Ryan Brown on the Farm Bureau phone line. Sports Talk Mississippi on this Wednesday afternoon. I want to say thanks again for the first hour of the show. For all of you who uh, who reached out, who sent us some of your memories and some of how um, September 11th, 2001 changed your life or called you to action or just uh, what stands out to you. That was a... Uh, uh, it was a good say, a good, good first hour this afternoon, and uh, for all of those of you who joined in on that, thank you very much. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippey. Time right now for the College Football Fix. College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com. Find out all about the best-selling trucks in America, the F-150 and uh, take them up on a, a great deal right now. Get a 2019 F-150 XLT and get the leather and liner promotion. Complimentary leather upgrade and the uh, bed liner, whether it's the drop-in liner or the spray-in liner. That's your choice. You can get that today at your local Mississippi Ford dealer. So, Borky, you, uh, Borky, you have gone to the film room and have been studying on Kansas State. What have you learned? Yeah, something like that. So uh, I'm fascinated by this matchup now because they present a pretty unique challenge to Mississippi State. If you just look at them statistically, you see that it's a team that's going to run the football a lot, but it's really more how they do it versus that they do it, which makes them interesting. So if you look at run-heavy teams in college football, like we saw Army last weekend where they run the triple option, where defensively all you need to do is maintain your integrity uh, read your keys, play your assignment, and you can stop the triple option because it's really all they do. Kansas State is unique in that they give you every personnel grouping from 10 to 40 or whatever you can, and everything in between. They will show you every kind of look imaginable and still run the football. So there were times, uh, I watched the, the Bowling Green game almost in its entirety. Uh, there were times where Kansas State will line up in the shotgun with three or four wide and, and just run the football out of the gun. There are times where Kansas State will 
uh, have two tight ends on one side of the formation and run the football that way. They even had a set that had two tight ends and two fullbacks and a running back. And so they give you so many different looks and distribute the football among their running backs. They have four guys, two that are graduate transfers and two that are freshmen, uh, that get the bulk of their carries. Uh, So there's not really one feature back. But I I was fascinated by the different ways they give you looks on offense and how they run the football at you because it's not one thing. It's not the triple option. It's not a a zone read. It's everything you can think of in, in various different personnel groupings And that helps Skylar Thompson. So he's not the best quarterback in the world, but he's efficient and accurate enough, especially because of how they use him. That two tight end set that I mentioned, they had two tight ends on the same side of the field, ran a little play action, had both of those tight ends in the pattern as well as the running back that they faked the handoff to. And he's just throwing little dump-offs and check-downs and stuff, but when the running game is so successful, he can do that. So he's not a great quarterback, doesn't have a big arm, but... The way they use the running game and the different looks, it opens things up for easy passing and just fascinating offense to watch because of how different it looks on any given drive. Hey, Dad, obviously the level of competition changes this week, but Kansas State through two games averaging 50.5 points per game. They've not allowed a first-half point so far this season. They've given up a total of 14 points, two touchdowns, in the uh, the season opener against Nickel State, won that game forty nine to fourteen, beat Bowling Green fifty two to nothing. So again, a much different opponent for the Wildcats this week. But when you look at this team, kind of along the lines of of what Borky was talking about, what do you see? What what concerns you? That running game is obviously going to be the biggest concern because State has had you know some issues stopping the run early this season. And when you think back to last season and the way MSU's defensive line just dominated Kansas State, they wouldn't let them get anything going. So those guys are gone. So it's it's this is a real test for Mississippi State uh, on that on that off, on that defensive line. They have to find a way to play better than they've played in these first two year, two games. And uh, a couple of things I did an interview today that you'll be able to hear on tomorrow's Thunder and Lightning podcast with Kellis Robinette, who covers the Wildcats for the Wichita Eagle. He he had two things that stood out to me. One sort of a big picture thing is if Kansas State has a lead, especially late in the game. Good luck getting it back because of the way they run the football. They just they're just going to eat the clock alive. But what I found interesting was the Kansas State defense. I asked him about that, tried to get some ideas. He's like, I don't have a really good feel for them. They've only been on the field for eighty five plays through two games. Wow. And you think about that, the average game, you know, is about seventy five. You get about seventy five plays offensively, and so eighty five is a pretty good game. That's through two games. They've only been on the field 85 plays. That is really that gives you an idea of what kind of offense they're running and and, and how they like to run the clock. This is this is going to be like watching an old school SEC football game with the way these two teams can run the football. Time of possession for the first two games. The average 42 minutes for Kansas State, 18 minutes for their opponents. That's insane. They are. I, mean, yeah. I don't buy into time, the time of possession as like a, an end all be all kind of stat. Oh, but I agree. If it if it's that big. Then the, the team that has the time of possession won. I, I would almost guarantee it in all instances. Third down conversions, they're converting at a 68% clip. Again, you got to note who the opponents are so far this year. What, what's fascinating, excuse me, what's fascinating to me, though, is they are about three to one rush attempts to pass attempts. So, man, not quite three to one. Two and a half to one, something like that. Through two games, a total of 41 pass attempts. Through two games, 116 rushing attempts on the season. 
And, you know, people talk about balance all the time. Balance is not 50-50 run pass. It's being able to do what you want when you want to. So if you want to run the ball 2-1, to 3-1, to one, but you, the pass is still effective for you when you need it, that's, that's the balance that Kansas State wants to have. They want to run the football, control the clock, but they want to have those play-action passes open for them. And so far this season, they've had, I mean, Thompson is completing 74% of his passes. Yeah. To go, to go with the leading rushing attack. I mean, you're going to, you're going to win some games doing that. Yeah, that's incredibly efficient. He's averaging about 175 yards a game. He's got three touchdowns. Has not thrown an interception this season. I, I guess some of what you look at is, through two games, a total of six penalties. Yeah. Kansas State right now is not doing anything to beat itself. No, they've only turned the ball over once in, through, through two games. They have one fumble, no picks. I mean, and that's something, you know, you would expect from Kansas State going back to Bill Snyder was a well-disciplined football team that wasn't going to beat itself. So Chris Kleiman has kept that identity and, and kept that part of it, but he's added this new offense. And, and this game, you know, last year I went into this game convinced State was going to win and win big just because they had the physical advantage on both lines of scrimmage. I don't know that State has that on the defense anymore. I, I, don't, I don't know that they do. So it's going to. It, this could be a game that goes back and forth a good bit. And you would love to know who Mississippi State's going to play on the defensive side of the ball. Is Lee Autry going to be there as part of Mississippi State's defense? Is Willie Gay going to be there as part of Mississippi State's defense in this ball game? And we just don't know. Yeah. I think if Autry plays this weekend, we'll go ahead and take him off the list of players that are suspended. But the way State's defense has played the first couple of games, I wouldn't be totally shocked if they bring Willie Gay off the shelf for this one. You 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 need some depth at linebacker. You need some athletes out there to to stop the, the, this running game. Won't be totally surprised if Willie Gay is on the field this weekend. Three eleven o'clock kickoffs involving SEC teams this week. You've got uh, Georgia hosting Arkansas State on ESPN two. Uh, Tennessee hosting Chattanooga on the SEC network, and then ESPN for Kansas State and Mississippi State. So that's immediately following game day in Ames, Iowa. They'll toss it to Starkville, Bob and Dan Orlovsky, and Allison Williams on the uh, broadcast. The CBS game one of the doubleheader this week is uh, Alabama at South Carolina. Game kicks at 2.30. Wait, there's not a doubleheader this week, is there? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Yeah, week. no, I'm, I'm crazy on that. Sorry. Alabama, South Carolina, CBS at 2.30. SEC Network at 3, Colorado State and Arkansas. SEC Network alternate channel at 3, Southeastern Louisiana and Ole Miss. Florida and Kentucky on ESPN at 6. Kent State and Auburn on ESPN 2 at 6. ESPNU at 6. you got Lamar at Texas A&M. Texas A&M might score 70 on Saturday. After the frustration of last week and being back at home, well, what's the spread? Jimbo, apparently he's got a pretty good eye on that. <laughs> That's you tough. Those There's one guy named it's... Lamar against Texas A&M. How's that going to work? It's 40-something, right? Got to be. He'll make sure they win by more than that. Yeah. Northwestern State and LSU in Baton Rouge, 630 on the SEC Network. And then um, also SEC Network alternate channel, Southeast Missouri State and Missouri. That one is in Columbia. So that's what's coming up this Saturday uh, for all the SEC teams in Week 3.
Talk Mississippi Media Production.